My guest today is one of the more controversial characters I've ever sat opposite, a convicted murderer three times over, but many would argue a murderer unworthy of the title, especially when considering motivation and intent. Professor Sean Davison has just completed three years of house arrest, a lenient sentence for the conviction of as many assisted suicides, which, to date, is still illegal in South Africa. But Sean remains unwavering in his belief that every person has the right to die with dignity. It's something that he unpacks at length in his newly released book, The Price of Mercy. Professor Sean Davison, welcome to TGE's Current Read. Hello, it's a pleasure to speak to you today. And you. I'm not sure what to congratulate you on first, the publication of your book or the fact that as of today, I believe you've been a free man for a week. Uh, congratulate me on the freedom. That is the most important thing for me and the family. Absolutely. Finally, to step out the gate and be free. And importantly for me, to speak freely. Before, I had a three-year media ban. Now, we can chat freely without being fearful of the law. Well, thank goodness for that, because you've got some important things to communicate. But I'm curious how, how you spent this past week of freedom, besides dozens of media interviews, of course. <laughs> yes, it was very busy. We did plan to make it a week of celebration. But what I can say is each time we left the gate was a moment of celebration. Uh, my eldest son, Flynn, is 13. And for the entire three years, he was always watching my back very careful that I didn't make a mistake. And now, even when we leave the property, if he sees a police car, he says his heart races. But he was, his intentions were always so kind to watch over me. But it, it, it did stress him a little bit. Oh, bless him. Well, um, you know, hopefully with time, uh, his, his anxiety, you know, dissipates and, and he can be a boy again. Yeah. It's obviously been very, very hard on your family and it's been... A few years in the making, even, I believe, before your, your daughter was born, because it's, it's not your first row. We're here for the book, to chat mostly about the book, which ties very closely in with your life, of course. It's a memoir of sorts. It's not your first rodeo as a writer, however. You have, I believe, three books that have been used as key material to support Right to Die organizations globally. Is that correct? Yes. My first book was Before We Say Goodbye, written before I was arrested for anything, describing my last, or my three months spent with my mother and her last three months of life. And at that stage, I had no idea what the future held. It was a book sharing a wonderful, privileged experience. And yeah, as a consequence of that book, the legal action began and continued for the next decade on and off. So it has. It's been, it's been about a decade of you backing and forthing yeah. and... And in the, in the process, you and your wife have just tried to <laughs> proceed with life. Have, ha, you had your daughter and uh, you raised your boys. The kids have been very much part of it. I mean, certainly my arrest for murder was a big shock for everyone. But immediately I had to explain to the children what it was about. Because there's a very, very real risk. I would go to jail at short notice, very short notice. I was charged for three murders, added on. There's no guarantee that my bail would be extended. When you're facing a premeditated murder charge, very often you're kept behind bars until your trial. Mm -hmm. And at all times I had to keep the children informed, especially after the first arrest, in case suddenly I was gone and behind bars. 
um, I didn't want to have to explain to them from my visiting hour opportunity. I wanted to explain to them in person. And that was quite difficult. Explaining to the boys, especially, they're a bit older, what murder meant and euthanasia and house arrest and plea bargains were. I mean, it was quite difficult concepts for them. My daughter was a bit younger at the time. And she didn't really need the same explanation. Your eldest uh, often accompanied you, I believe, to one of your close friends who is a quadriplegic, Libart. He's a quite a prominent character in the book. Did that help him understand and grasp the concept of, of what you were advocating for? Yes. At the time when he accompanied me to visit these people, of course, it was long before I was charged with murder, and I was only showing him what life is about. And bad things, terrible things, happen to very good people. And this is part of his education. And he understood, a very mature, wise boy, even at that age. And, yeah, I think it's a very good part of his education. Are you still in contact with Libat now? Yes, I keep in contact with everyone, all my friends. Nothing, nothing has changed. Sean, even though it's not actually your day job, you're best known. You, you work at the University of the Western Cape as a professor in, not micro, biotechnology. biotechnology. Yes. I get it mixed yes. up. I want to keep saying microbiology yes. and biotechnology. Mm-hmm. So that's your day job, but you're best known for your right to die advocacy, which is why we're here. And you are co-founder of Dignity South Africa. How will you continue your work in this vein? I will continue in this. I've been involved for 10 years. I'm certainly not going to walk away in spite of what happened. I should add that I kind of didn't choose to be in this field. Um, It only happened because of the arrest for my mother's death. And after the media publicity that went with that, I was inundated with letters and emails, not only from people who were suffering and dying and seeking help on how to die, but people who had done similar things, helped their loved one to die. And they were really in pain and anguish at at what they'd done. Mm -hmm. And by hearing my story, they realized they were not alone. Mm -hmm. And the more I heard about it, the more I became aware of the issue an issue I had almost no awareness of. But when I was aware of it, I realised, gosh, I've got to keep going. This is so important to our humanity. The issues around dying and death we're all going to face, we can't ignore them. And prior to my mother's death, I had never thought of euthanasia and or assisted dying. Totally foreign concepts that hadn't entered my mind. I was busy living life and enjoying life not thinking about death, but I think it's an important conversation to have when you're young and uh, and can plan for the future. And by having a conversation, you're ready when your elderly parents may die or grandparents. And indeed, when you get to that point, you're ready. You've talked about it. You've thought about it. It's a really, really important discussion to have because we're all going to die. There's no escape from that. Mm, it's um, much like the discussions, the very controversial discussions around abortion, you know, pregnancy and birth, uh, currently with, with the repeal of Roe Ro versus Wade. Uh, I mean, these are birth and pregnancy, as much as death, is something that happens yeah. to each one of us. So this is, these are discussions yeah. that we should all be having, as, as you mentioned. I, you raise a good point, because uh, I'm a little bit older than you, and 20, 30 years ago, we didn't talk about abortion or homosexuality or AIDS or drug abuse. 
didn't talk about it. But then slowly they enter the conversation. And now my children learn about them at school. And we talk about it around the dinner table. Mm-hmm. It should be the same for dying and mm-hmm. death. It's not an issue to hide from. Let's embrace it, talk about it, and in many ways, celebrate it. We're going to die. Let's make it a moment of celebration. Make it the most important day of our life. Having said goodbye to our loved ones and family and celebrated the life we lived, why make it a sad, tragic occasion? On that, and and I'm, I'm here to play devil's advocate, I suppose, suicide as it relates to voluntary euthanasia and suicide as a result of depression and mental illness, when you, when you aren't otherwise physically ill or trapped in your body or uh, terminally ill, they're two vastly different things, which you know any reasonable adult and even child can understand. The differences are obvious, but there is somewhat of an intersection with regards to depression because terminally ill people can likewise be depressed or people who have locked-in syndrome and, and are physically disabled can also be depressed. I didn't feel like it was something that you covered in, in your book, but as a right-to-die advocate, how do you strike the balance in that argument? There are many complex issues. The, the terminal illness is very straightforward. The person is going to die, they have a short prognosis, and the law change would shorten the distance. Instead of dying from natural causes, which could be very painful and undignified, they choose their time near the end. The other issue, when you're um, physically handicapped, maybe a quadriplegic, is also quite straightforward. The severe loss of quality of life can make life unbearable. And we call that unbearable suffering. Okay, you've introduced a third idea, the idea of mental illness. And what one has to distinguish here is just because you're mentally ill doesn't mean that you can't make a mentally competent decision. And I know it's a complex discussion for the public, but sometimes a depressed person can make a better decision than a happy person. It can be quite hard to, to grasp. Because you're depressed doesn't mean to say you're not mentally competent. And I don't think that will be added to a law straight away. It's mm-hmm. going to take a lot more discussion before it does happen. My personal view is that if a depressed person makes a repeated request, they are assessed for their mental competence and they're making a rational decision, it should be considered within the law. Remember, anyone can end their life at any time. That depressed person can jump off a building and have a horrible death, or they can have a dignified death after repeated requests after a long period of time. Yeah, there's a lot to say around that. I'm not. I would like to talk about it. There's a really interesting point. It's a lot. It's a lot to unpack, and certainly very nuanced, and certainly very controversial. And my argument is always: you can't conflate morals and ethics with the law. So primarily, we are here to discuss the law. Um, on that note, yeah, though, yeah. dignitas in in Switzerland. That's one of their parameters. You need to you need to check you. You need to check out um, in, in mentally, uh, psychologically. Mental competence. You need but to have you mental can mental. have a mental illness. If you're, we had a case, Ernest uh, Haas, his name was, he went to the European Human Rights Court requesting an assisted death in Switzerland after he was turned down. He had bipolar. And the Human, Ra- the Human Rights Commission looked into it and said, yes, 
he should be allowed it because his decision was mentally competent. He's rational when he made the decision. Mm -hmm. And there are other mental illnesses like that. If you have early onset Alzheimer's, you can have an assisted death in Switzerland too, if you're mentally competent at the time of your decision. Oh, it's certainly interesting and, and a lot to unpack and think about, I think, free from judgment, which is a lot to ask for, for many people. <laughs> Belgium has a very liberal law. There was a case where two brothers, they were uh, deaf and mute, they couldn't talk, but they communicated by sign language. They had difficulty finding friends, but they had a wonderful relationship with each other. They grew up together, they worked together, they lived together communicating very fluently and descriptively with their hands, sign language. Mm -hmm. But then one of them was diagnosed as going blind. With no vision, they had no means of communication. And I, I, I believe, I'm not certain, I think they were both about to go blind. They were granted an assisted death in Belgium based on the unbearable suffering that they would have for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Considered highly controversial at the time, and probably is, by most people's standards, but really, no, it is their decision. They considered their life was becoming unbearable. Mm. Repeatedly, they made that request. They were considered to be of a rational state of mind, and they were granted an assisted death. It's a very wide issue, complex issue, as you can see. Mm, for sure. So I, uh, on the further complicating your life, I suppose... Uh, you were approached the day of your release, I believe, by a woman named Emma looking for assistance. How will you navigate these types of approaches going into the future until, of course, the laws change? I was approached by Emma on the day of my release, but throughout my time on house arrest, I continued to get requests to the Dignity SA email address. People wanting help and advice on how to die. Steady throughout my years, roughly 152 requests I came across. And that's the tip of the iceberg. It's only people who know about Dignity SA being able to give advice or know about me. Every day all over our country, people are having, having horrible deaths and would probably prefer to choose to die with dignity if they had the option. Mm. At the moment, we're unable to help anybody because of the law change. Mm. We can give advice, but we will really focus on campaigning for a law change. Sean, tell me about Peter Hawk. You don't mention him in the book, but together with his wife, um, he appears to have been by your side upon your release. Dieter Hawk, he is suffering motor neuron disease, and he has applied to the High Court for an assisted death, the option of an assisted death. Keep in mind, there's always an option when you're granted an assisted death. A very courageous man and his wife, Lynn, when you're near the end, suffering terribly, you want to be alone with your family normally, and he is sacrificing that time in an attempt to change the law. He is sharing his death with the world, extremely courageous and selfless. Do you, do you think that a law change is imminent? There's, there's been a, law, a recent law change in New Zealand. Do you think South Africa will follow suit? I think it will. Following a from Dieter Haack. His case is already in the High Court to be uh, concluded in September. If he loses his application, it will go to the Supreme Court of Appeal. If he loses that, it will go to the Constitutional Court. We believe the Constitutional Court will grant him an assisted death. 
mainly because our constitution is based on dignity in life, which we believe the court will apply to dignity in dying and death. And should that be granted, the court and the parliament will be on different pages and the parliament will have to change the law to match the court. There is a case which you describe in the book where the law was launched into a grey area. One man, Robin Strancham Ford, was given permission by courts to proceed with voluntary euthanasia, uh, but he passed away before he could proceed with that and government then appealed the ruling after his death. What were the implications of that? Well, the implication was that the government is totally opposed to a law change. Um, even though he died on the, the day of, his, of the court ruling in his favour, the, the ruling stood and the government challenged it in the Supreme Court of Appeal and it was overturned. At every opportunity, our government prevents a law change. At the moment, they're challenging Dieter Harkin Court, the fact that the NPA and the Hawks went after me, every opportunity is seen as the government opposing a law change. And I could add that my plea bargain looks lenient. This was not due to any sympathy from the government for what I did. It was a much more complicated reason. Yes, yeah, and um, I, I apologise if that did come across as as such because you can read in the book that the government, and, and I wonder why, I wanted to ask you that question, why do you think government is so anti a law change here? Yeah, it is very disappointing. They're very fearful of en engaging in this discussion because it's too controversial. And, and we have to ask the question, what kind of government allows its people to suffer so horrendously at the end of life because it is too controversial? And sadly, it is our government. We, we are, if only our government looked around the world at the other countries changing the law, as you said, New Zealand and Australia recently, Spain and Austria this year, 12 states in America. There's a mood around the world for this law change. There's a mood in this country for a law change. The government has got to stick its head above the parapet and engage in the discussion and change the law. It seems to be quite incongruous with our progressive uh, constitution. It really is. There are deep-seated reasons why it's not happening, and I understand it. Remember, the majority of our population follows African ancestral religions. A very important part of that is to have a good death in order to become an ancestor. And helping someone to die or even having an assisted death is not considered a good death. And I can understand the deep feeling for not changing the law. However, here the role of Desmond Tutu comes in. Not only was he a Christian, but he was a follower of African ancestral religions. And he stated to the world the type of death he wanted. And he referred to the African ancestral religions. And he said, if the time came, should he need it, he would like an assisted death. In many ways, he was conveying to all people in the country, it's okay to have an assisted death if you are suffering. It appears that even now, in his late absence, he seems to be helping in the mindset shift with regard to assisted suicide and dying with dignity. Do you think he helped your case? Oh, did he ever? He made a huge difference. Uh, when I was arrested in New Zealand for my mother's death, he was actually the chancellor of my university, UWC, and he didn't know me well uh, as another professor in the university. We got to know each other very well after that. 
but he still wrote to the court in New Zealand and said, I know Sean Davison, he's a family man, please let him come back to South Africa and for the trial, because the trial was a, a year away. And the court granted that. It's very, had never been done in New Zealand before, letting a murder accused out of the country. And then at the time of the sentencing for the assisted suicide, he wrote to the court pleading for leniency. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any court in the world would have not listened to Desmond Tutu. <laughs> and the judge, Judge uh, French in New Zealand, said she listened to Desmond Tutu's argument and gave me a very lenient sentence. He made a huge difference to my life. Every step along the way, he supported me. And even when I was first arrested out of the blue for Dr. Anrik Berger's death, he didn't know the circumstances. Immediately, he made a statement supporting me for what I'd done knowing I'd done a good, kind action, mm-hmm. which really was incredible. And it felt wonderful for me to have that support at that time when everybody was raising their eyebrows. Hang on, he helped his mother to die and now a complete stranger? So it seemed. But Desmond Tutu came to my, came to my, to my rescue. Sean, it comes out, I, I want to go back to, you know, I suppose governments and police are also two different entities. Um, but it comes out quite strongly in the book that you believe the police may have, let's call it for lack of a better word, a vendetta against you, that you've been targeted. And you mention your research project, the Innocence Project, which is for good. Are you, are you still busy with that? Do you think that might be a reason? Do you still think that might be a reason? You know, how, why, why would police be targeting you for that? No, uh, I, I don't really, I think that's a misunderstanding. Certainly, the Innocence Project is quite different, and it is continuing, looking at freeing people based on historical DNA evidence. I don't think that is connected at all. I should state I have no anger or bitterness towards the police. They were only doing what they're told to do. They're told to arrest me, or they're told to monitor me on house arrest. I don't have any grudge. I've no grudge against the court. The court was only applying the law to the charge I was faced with. The only issue I had is with the government. It's quite different. They are the lawmakers. They are the ones who have this shocking law that finds me a murderer, when I'm clearly not a murderer. I, I don't have to say it for myself. I think most people know that from, from the facts I've read. The government is a problem. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the clarifying that. Um, has anything come out of the fake Nambutal story? Yeah, that was a, a state, a story where Nebutol, the drug used to end a life, was being sold on Gumtree in South Africa. Nebutol you cannot get in this country. It's, it's used in every country to end a life where the law has changed. And I was obtaining it from overseas illegally, as it happened. And I was quite shocked to discover that it was being sold here or, or attempted to be sold. And now I see no advertising of Nebuchadnezzar on Gumtree or any other source in South Africa. So that is very good news. Okay. So you don't d- want to be taking a fake drug. I mean, it, it, it's, as, it's as dangerous, I suppose, as, as a result of abortion being outlawed, that you have unsafe abortions. It doesn't stop it from happening. And so, I mean, to fill, I don't want to prevent people from actually reading your book, but fake Nembutal has a chance of not being successful, which causes greater pain and suffering. And that is what you had tried to to intervene on. 
So just to reiterate that, you can't find any evidence of that being sold on Gumtree anymore? No, no. When when people are desperate to die, they're searching everywhere. They will try anything when they're really desperate. And you shouldn't take a medication if you don't know what it is. The chances are it doesn't work and you end up in a worse condition than before, maybe even mentally damaged. Do you think that your intervention helped in that instance? And, and you risked a lot because it was your in- intervention while you were going through all the, the legal hoops before you were convicted. Yeah, I think I did raise awareness and frightened off those who were doing it. And now I'm a free man. I can monitor it more carefully to make sure this isn't happening again. Yeah. I mean, the, the, as described in the book, again, I don't want to, uh, you know, I want people to, re- to read the book, but you, you have a very f- short time frame where you can't travel <laughs> and you have to drive to and from Johannesburg to have a meeting to create an intervention, which is good, you know, it, you, you nip it, <laughs> you know, according to a very tight timeline. So that's quite, a, <laughs> it's quite, quite the drama in the book. <laughs> You can, I couldn't turn my back on that either. When you know something's right, you have to act on it. Mm. You can't turn your back on it. You're doing very, very wrong to have done that. Sean, you describe in the book how you came pretty close to contravening the parameters set by your house arrest. It seems fairly easy to do, though, even by accident. I think I can share one little story, yes. I know the publisher doesn't like me telling a whole story in one interview. It was after Christmas, and I took the children to university. Uh, I'm allowed to go to university to work. So this was the only treat out of the property. I got permission from the university. We had a great time at the university while I worked. And on the way back, my little daughter, she's only uh, five at the time, Papa, please, please stop at the park. There's the swings and roundabouts. We hadn't done that for a very long time. I took a little chance. The park was surrounded by trees and we stopped and we crept in and they started playing for the first time for a very long time. And 10 minutes later, no, 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 along, the police come driving onto the park, sirens and lights flashing, detain me. And yeah, it was a very scary moment. Maybe I won't continue to complete the whole story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the conditions were very strict. I was only allowed to go to work report there so the police could know I'd arrived and go home at a certain time that was that was all I could do yeah I'm sure it's so difficult to be able to cope mentally for that and I think the way that most of us South Africans can relate is um, if we think about how we felt when we were under hard lockdown which also overlapped with with your house arrest so mm-hmm. it had more of a mental toll on South Africans than what we realized it would. Staying home and not being able to go anywhere and, um, you know, being confined in that way. Do you think that hard lockdown with so much of, so you know, so many people in South Africa for a few months, at least, being in hard lockdown at the same as you, was it different? Uh, did you find some camaraderie in that? What Did it make things easier for you? Is it still something that people wouldn't be able to understand until we're in those shoes. I wouldn't wish hard lockdown on anyone, but yeah, sure, I think everyone experienced house arrest. I think most people in the world had some form of hard lockdown. Yeah, it it is tough. Yeah, For me particularly, it was the exercise. I love my exercise, swimming, gym, hiking up the mountain. 
that's the hardest part. But I had my children and I had my intellectual activities with, with work and yeah, I survived. Have you been up the mountain this week? Oh, definitely, yes. That came straight away with the dogs and the children. They have had that. That's the one thing we did do. Yeah, it Amazing. felt great. Are you still awaiting word from New Zealand uh, to see if you can get your get back your right to work? Because they, they took it away and now their laws changed in New Zealand. You know, there was another painful hearing process for you. What what was that exactly? I might not be wording it correctly. And and have you heard back from them? What happened? The a New Zealand citizen, uh, I'm a dual citizen. The conviction in another country can be transferred to New Zealand. And when I was convicted of murder, they were transferred convictions to New Zealand. And I had a medical tribunal hearing, and I was convicted of medical misconduct, and struck off from working in any medical profession in New Zealand. I found that a bit unfair to transfer a conviction from one country to another, because if I'd been arrested in New Zealand, I would have gone on trial. I wouldn't have taken a plea bargain. And maybe a jury trial in New Zealand would have found me not guilty. I could not do that in South Africa. I didn't want to go on trial. had the risk of ending up in a South African prison, which as we know are extremely crowded, violent, dangerous places. And people don't come out the same person that went in. Mm. So, yeah, I did apply for a pardon. It was turned down because my crime was committed before the law changed. Mm. And there have been some appeals, but it doesn't look likely at the moment. I also apply in South Africa for a pardon once the law changes here. And it will change. It might not be next year or in five years or ten years, but it will change. The whole civilised world will change one day and have laws that deal with death and dying in a compassionate way. That will happen. And we're going to look back at the nonsense of today and my trial with great shame. And unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, both, and uh, you were collateral damage in that because you were so integral to, to, to the struggle and in the activism for that. And it's all detailed in your book, as I will communicate to our readers and our listeners. Uh, you had immigration plans. Besides that and work, or in addition to that, I suppose I'm asking a deal question, what is next for Professor Sean Davison? Well, uh, I'm not planning to leave the country at the moment. It's a wonderful country to be in South Africa. I've been here 30 years. I am a South African. But what I do want to highlight is that this issue is not going to go away. I'm in the news today. My book is in the news. Tomorrow you've read it and I'll be forgotten. But it will come back again and again and again. There'll be another issue, another arrest. It will keep continuing until the law does change. And it is not going to be about me from now on. It is about other people, other terminally ill people, other people, maybe quadriplegics, begging to die, to die with dignity, and our society respecting their request. At the moment, the law does not respect it. Well, Sean, I think that's a poignant uh, point to make, and we'll leave it at that. Um, I want to thank you for your time, especially in your first week of freedom, and all the best for the future. Thank you for joining me on, on TGE's current read. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you.